was just about to give some Zazen instructions. So <laughs> should have done that. So it's a very important year for me and for all of us. But for me, I'm taking it as um, just a reminder how important our practice is, the importance of practicing this path for the benefit of the whole world and for all of us and our or rabbit hutch here. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> we'll have to carve in some little doors everywhere. <laughs> but uh, all the many teachings and the paths of our our school are to get us back to the same place, to our natural state of wholeness. So the longer uh, I spend on this planet, the more um, incredibly important that simple teaching is that this path is meant to get us back to our natural state of wholeness, which we've never left. That's the secret, but it's to get us back there. So I've been reading a book by a great uh, Tibetan, a teacher in the Tibetan tradition, Anne Klein, and it's the... Um, it's another compilation of mind training techniques. There are many mind training techniques and the Tibetan school, which is most devoted to the feeling that you will wake up in this life to this natural state of wholeness. And in order to help us do that, it has many techniques. So this is a series of techniques. She's translated this great work and it's a wonderful book to read. And where do you think the mind training start? Where do you think? Right. Oh, that's nice. Um, there are seven. The first one is study impermanence. So the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, when he first started on the path, one of the things that we say, and probably is true, stimulated his exploration away and, and uh, uh, putting aside certain things that he'd become habituated to, um, was realizing that things were impermanent. Old age, sickness, and death, things are impermanent. I want to study this. I want to study liberation in the middle of this. <coughs> so practically every uh, or path-oriented teaching in Buddhism starts us there with impermanence. And studying impermanence is not that easy. Um, we resist it. So Anne Klein, in her translation, says... In Dzogchen, which is the school she teaches, how many of you know about Dzogchen? Okay, yeah. Dzogchen is a really important part of Tibetan Buddhism. The way Zen is an important part of Mahayana, Dzogchen is a really important part of um, the Tibetan tradition. And the, the literal translation is complete wholeness. So it's the school within the school, school within the school of Tibetan Buddhism, which is within the school of Mahayana Buddhism, which is in the big family of Buddhism, is the school that really aims toward the state of, the natural state of wholeness, your mind as it is. Which is why Zazen, our school, is very similar to Dzogchen. And it's actually really fun to read Dzogchen teachings because it's like our family. Oh, they're just talking about just sitting in the mind as it is. Okay. But Anne says that one of the reasons for the uh, placement of studying impermanence at the beginning is that she says, 
recognizing impermanence kicks open the door to seeing the actual nature of mind. Very strong statement. Kicks open the door to seeing the actual nature of mind. So we are doing that too. <coughs> Kicking open the door. So how is it that studying impermanence, including old age, sickness, and death, is so important? And how do we study it? So Anne Klein's translation of Long Chimpa says, see if this sounds familiar to us as Zen students, meditate without trying to banish thoughts, yet without putting a lasso around them. Instead, inquire, what is the support of this thought? This leads to peace and stillness. So meditate without banishing thoughts, it's a very strong word in, in Tibetan, apparently, but without banishing, but without putting a lasso around your thoughts. Have you, any of you felt that? What's like to sort of have a lasso around the thoughts and to think that they're all strung together in this web <coughs> or kind of better not forget that one. Got to tie that one to this one. That's our mind doing that. And this is a way of being in the presence of your thought processes <coughs> while watching yourself, watching ourselves, oh, there's a lasso getting ready to go around that thought. Dissolve that lasso. But don't banish the thoughts. Can, you, can we sit in the middle of that activity? So when I look for a support of a thought that has arisen, I and all of us are looking back into wholeness. So we're looking into what supports thoughts, and that is everything, and ultimately, it's wholeness itself. So you just keep going back and back and back without trying to lasso it all to a chain of, of um, uh, occurrences. Okay, there is a movie in the world right now called Barbie. <laughs> Have any of you seen it? Okay. okay, you wave like this. <laughs> elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist. Elbow. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. It's really, really good. I went some, with some friends recently, and it had many teachings that are still unfolding. It's an excellent movie. Uh, it's like Zen. It kind of sneaks in these really these, these teachings that are going to undermine your whole way of thinking. And, and it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of impermanence, old age, sickness, and death, there is a moment, I think it's in a dance sequence, when uh, Barbie says, and I'm, are any of you having um, continuous thoughts of death? <laughs> and then everything freezes. It's like the game statue, everything stops. That world cannot continue if the death is thought of. And then I think she denies it or something. She says, oh, I didn't really mean it. And the world starts up again. <laughs> so when we really see impermanence, it does have this effect. It can put a, it stops things as we think they are. It stops the continuity. Things will keep rolling. But our sense of what, it, what the meaning is can come to a bit of a stop when we think about death which is what I'm doing, because it's my birthday, thinking about death. <laughs> 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 so 
So um, it's really true. That is what I'm thinking about. <laughs> because um, it's really one of the most important places to practice and to liberate oneself. So being able to meditate on the real impermanence that this set of feelings and consciousnesses and preferences and so on, my, my, my feeling of selfness will end. To free myself from fear about that is really important. And the same people who practice Dzogchen, Tibetan trained people, start at a very young age remembering death. And I remember how heartbroken I was when my canary died. That was the first time I really realized that things end. Very heartbreaking moment. Couldn't quite believe it. But there he was in his green perfection. And I, too, will die with all my feathers <laughs> and fur. So I have been thinking about it. And it could happen today. It could happen this afternoon. Royce and I were out in the um, parking area yesterday. And I came back into the Hojo, the little house out there which I was thinking was finished in that same year I mentioned where my metal and zodiac signs aligned. So I got a rabbit hutch in that year. <laughs> um, and Royce was getting ready to drive out the gate and we heard an incredible crash, incredible car crash. And I ran out because there was a possibility that it was Royce and it wasn't. Well, you know, had I not helped unload groceries, I would have had to dial out and I would have been in that exact same area at the exact time. Hey. Thank you for helping me unload the groceries. <laughs> and for living. Yeah. It could happen. I mean, the chances of us getting in a car wreck are very, very high, actually. So please all drive safely. So I do think about this and the um, death, old age, sickness, and so on are completely part of this natural state of wholeness. This is what we live in, and it's beautiful. Without those parts of it, without Barbie seeing death as part of it, it would just be a partial life. So one can appreciate it so much more when we know how precious it is and how precious our friends' lives are, families, everyone. Um, here's another teaching on impermanence. From the Lotus Sutra. Lotus Sutra started with the Mahayana, and um, it's another kicking down the door by studying impermanence. So it says delusion conceives of things as existent or non existent, as being real or unreal, as born or unborn. This is delusion. In an uncluttered place, concentrate your mind. Remain steady and unmoving like a polar mountain. Observe that all phenomena have no existence, that they are like space without solid stability, neither being born nor emerging. Unmoving, unflagging, abide in oneness. This is called the place of nearness. Okay? This is an instruction on how to study impermanence. Delusion conceives of things as existent or non-existent, as being real or unreal, as born or unborn. In an uncluttered place, 
Concentrate your mind. Remain steady and unmoving like a polar mountain. Observe that all phenomena have no existence, that they are like space without solid stability, neither being born nor emerging, unmoving, unflagging, abide in oneness. This is called the place of nearness. The place of nearness is, what, is, what are we near to? We're near to the great secret. The great secret is that we're already here. We're already abiding in complete wholeness. That's the tradition. So um, Zen and the Dzogchen part of, uh, Zen is the part of Mahayana and Dzogchen is a part of the Tibetan tradition, both emerged at around the same time, which is significant because they were both um, disruptive. We're talking about things that disrupt. Both were disruptive. They were disruptive of a way of practicing and of a way of thinking about how we practice Buddhism. So they both emerged as a, um, uh, an, a different way of approach, a different option. The, um, you could say, this is a kind of a generalization, but you could say that practice of Buddhism and awakening had become a bit remote. It was seen as the occupation of specialists, people who dedicated their whole lives, lived in monasteries, and for the total awakening experience into complete wholeness, you had to give up everything and move to a monastery, basically. And Zen and Dzogchen said, oh no, that could not be true. That would be a dualistic way of thinking. It can happen right here, right now, with this ordinary activity. So think how disruptive that must have been. I looked up disruption. Mark and I were talking about uh, disruptive technologies on our drive back from the land recently. It was very fun. And then we both realized, hey, Zen is the ultimate disruption. But there are others. Think about what has historically disrupted the way things were. The wheel, the light bulb, the cell phone. These were major disruptions to a way of life, directly challenging the way things had been done. The cell phone, a major disruption. Also, personal computers. Most of you in this room do not remember the time before personal computers. Is that true? Is there anybody who remembers the time before personal computers? Oh, wow. (laughs) But they were a major disruption because before that... uh, Tasks in an office setting or in a school setting were highly um, hierarchical, highly divided. And in offices back then, certain people did the typing. A lot of other people did no typing, didn't know how to type. Instructions were dictated. You might have to learn shorthand and you would receive dictation and then you would go and type. So... When I was in high school, typing wasn't offered. So you had to make special arrangements to learn how to type. And I thought, that seems like a cool skill. So I did learn how to type, but now it's pretty much automatic to operate a keyboard, correct? So when it was, um, when personal computers arrived, it broke through those hierarchies, I remember. And suddenly everyone could type. And then the distinctions in an office space were erased 
And so people who had this status job were typing on their own computers. People who had this status job were typing on their own computers. So for a while, it looked like things were going to be kind of equal. But then, since I just saw the movie Barbie, I can say this. this the patriarchy reasserted itself. <laughs> and so it still went back to certain people do certain kinds of typing and other people do certain kinds of typing, correct? Mm -hmm. Is that true? So. <laughs> but for a while, it was quite liberating for everyone to have access to a computer. So we can we can recapture that. I'm just saying, since I saw the movie Barbie, it's a very revolutionary movie, apparently. So here's a definition of uh, disruption. For a technology to be considered disruptive, it has to modify a habit or behavior and be accessible to the majority of the population. Accessible to a majority of the population. And that's what Zen was and still is. It's accessible to everyone. Everyone can do this practice and you don't even have to be a Buddhist. That's how revolutionary Zen is. So when Zen arrived in North America, it arrived with Japanese American populations. And it was still, it has always been a disruptive teaching in the sense that the teaching is always, you are Buddha nature, always. And then when it came into the temples that were Japanese-American, teaching is still true. I believe it's possible that the Japanese-American communities thought, we're coming to America, the land of opportunity. We're all Buddha nature. Americans are all Buddha nature. And then, not so easy oppression, discrimination, all sorts of things happen. And so the Japanese <coughs> Zen and all other Buddhist schools, communities got um, segregated out and actually during the Second World War, quite discriminated against. And Zen was lumped into that as a dangerous other practice by others. Then shortly after that, when Zen emerged into this uh, non-Japanese American Western culture, it was disruptive again, because there was this teaching that all you have to do is sit and you will achieve awakening. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do ceremonies, forget about the precepts, just sit down and wake up. That lasted for a good 20 years. And then we started realizing, no, we also need the precepts and also there's some ineffable, difficult to define teaching that's coming with the ceremonies. And so it may look like now Zen is getting a little ossified, getting a little rigid because we're doing ceremonies that are kind of strange, but actually it's because the real disruption is also presented through the ceremonies. The real instruction to bow, Think of what that disrupts in our consciousness. So Zen maintains this disruptive quality. So now here we are in a world that's really super hot, really hot. So I wanna bring up something about that 
situation that we're in because we Zen people, as I've said before, people who practice Zen and are willing to take this, this radical teaching to heart, we have something to offer the world. And we have a lot to offer in how to work with our thinking because when we're watching the um, opportunities to how to think about the situation, some of them pull us toward despair. Some of us pull us toward, let's just ignore the situation, which is another form of despair. And some, some possibilities of thought pull us toward action. And the, um, the, the quality of despair is unnecessary in our world. And the reason I can say that is because of my vast years of living on the planet. And <laughs> quite a few. Um, Asian cultures and indigenous cultures, First, First Nations cultures, really value the perspective of the human consciousness that's been around for a long time. Because we've seen things before that when you're newer on the planet, you haven't seen. And I very clearly remember being, well, I remember a lot from very, very early, but I remember being like 11 and 16, 18, and thinking, wow, this is a terrible situation. It's the end of the world. We must do something about this right now because it's all over. And then we get through that and we go on to the next one. So the cycles of our experience are really long. And all of you who now have a chance to remember various other crises, just think about it and access that long view. Part of our real value of being in such an ancient tradition is that we access the long view of all of our ancestors and all of the stories of Buddhism. I think last time I talked, I talked about young men who lived in a time when all of Buddhism was suppressed in China. And then it came back flourishing. So we will go through that kind of thing too. Or it went through that in the 40s in this country. So allying ourselves with the long view of, of Buddhism, allying ourselves with the really long view of ind indigenous cultures is a source of, of, of wholeness for us. Indigenous people really know the cycles of things and various... Um, writings by indigenous people and stories that have been maintained show they know how there are peoples who know what it's like when their whole world ends and then they have to adapt to a new situation. So the, the world of the Native Americans, first peoples in North America almost came to an end. But if you listen to them, they say, well, actually it didn't. You know, that's a story that dominant cultures now tell that the, the, the native peoples are done. Actually, they're incredibly active and vibrant and paying attention. In fact, one publication by um, an activist indigenous group says that they showed that, I think it's a study, showed that 25% of the, of, uh, the reduction in, in emissions in this country is due to the activism of native American peoples super active and indigenous people all over the world are very active so if we listen to the narrative that these things have ended we're just colluding in delusion so 
really important, exciting things are happening. Real culture is being carried outside of the stories of the dominant <coughs> culture. So that's where, that's where I want to um, turn my attention. All those stories that are, are full of hope and awareness of our long, 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 long history. So I hope I get to talk to you again in another 12 years. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, I was going to read you. Yeah, I, I forgot. I'd like to read you the um, other six points on her list. Number one, reflection on impermanence. Two, studying temporary happiness and lasting happiness. Three, reflecting on the multiple conditions for death. Four, oh, you'll like this one. The pointlessness of all activities. <laughs> Five, training, relying on the Buddha's good qualities, Buddha's plural. Six, reflecting on the Lama's practical instructions. Lama Long Chimpa. Seven, threefold non-conceptual contemplation, training in clarity and emptiness, training with respect to reality, relax. 